You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. This last week, we wrapped up in our series through Exodus titled Grace Upon Grace. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at what it looks like to forge a culture of discipleship. And so starting next month, most likely I'm going to be leaving on sabbatical for, for a few months and the members of our church are graciously blessing me with that. And so I thought, what do I want to leave and teach on before I take sabbatical? And it would be forging a culture of discipleship. So that's what we're going to look at over the next few weeks. And so we're going to start this morning with 1 Thessalonians 2.8. 1 Thessalonians 2.8, recognize this, my heart and intention for teaching on what it looks like to forge a culture of discipleship and create a culture of discipleship is it's important for the church to know and understand what discipleship is since it's Jesus's commission to the church, but also it's important that we are forging and creating that culture because if our church only exists for, for the purpose of we come to receive and we come to get, and we only come when there's certain preaching styles or there's certain worship styles, then we're actually missing the beauty of what the church is and what it was intended to be, and even what discipleship is. And so that's why we're going to spend a few weeks talking about some of this. But before we do that, as it's already been stated, let me say this again. Moms, super grateful for you guys. So happy Mother's Day. I'm excited to be here, excited to preach the word. I know, as Sarah said, this morning comes with all sorts of emotions, and I know that even for my own wife as well. You add foster care and all of that into the mix of it all, and it's a difficult season. And so I'm really grateful for all of you and for the work that you do. So thank you. I'm also a mama's boy. And so there's that, not a, not a weird one. Like there are weird mama's boys. And women, watch out for a weird mama's boy. So if you got those signs up front, some of those red flags, pay attention to them because you're gonna be Fighting for the affections with mama, and it gets weird. All right, uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, 8. That's what we're going to be at. But I'm going to read, starting from 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1, while they tune in my mic, just to give us a little bit of context of what's going on here. This is Paul's letter and his first letter. In fact, it's probably one of the earliest letters that we have in our New Testament. And it's written to the church in Thessalonica, and this is God's word penned through the apostleship of Paul. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came to you with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you. This is where we're honing in today, verse 8 right here. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we are ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. We'll read verse nine and pause there. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you 
while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your common grace, Father, that you've given breath to all of us. You've given sunshine to all of us. Whether there are people in this room that believe in you or reject you in your gospel, you still allow your common grace to fall on us all, and it shows how merciful you are. Father, minister to us. Wherever we're at this morning, wherever we're coming in, we praise you for your word and for the gift of the gospel, the good news, and not just any news, the good news of your son and what your son has done. Minister minister to us deeply this morning. Comfort our mothers. Comfort all of us, Father. Challenge all of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our main point this morning is going to be discipleship is giving. Discipleship is giving. And so a disciple is a student or a learner. And in order to be a student or a learner, that means that you are learning. You're being a student, which means someone is teaching you, which means that discipleship is giving. Jesus didn't say, go forth and find someone to disciple you. Jesus said, go forth and make disciples, which is going to be giving the teaching of Jesus Christ and also baptism. And so discipleship is giving. So we're going to look at the subpoints of that this morning of giving is this, giving affections, giving good news, and giving our hearts. So discipleship is giving, then we're going to look at giving affections, giving good news, and giving our hearts. I have talked about this specific verse for quite some while with our elders. They can attest that. I've shared it with other people. And it's a bit of a unique spot to start with talking about discipleship. But the reason why is because discipleship isn't just about giving knowledge to someone else and saying, hey, here's a theological term or phrase, but there's also this very nature of discipleship that includes giving our hearts to people as well. Sometimes it's easy to give the theological knowledge, but not necessarily how that's being lived out in our life. Hey, are you familiar with meticulous providence? I know that word, it's pretty cool. But the way that's actually living out in my life is, which that means that God is sovereignly in control over everything. But the reality is how it's living out in my life is that I'm struggling to trust God. In fact, I I feel like my life is spiraling out of control. And so I I don't just want to tell you about the definition. I want to tell you how I'm struggling to believe the reality of how good and faithful God is and how it's impacting my life. And so we're going to look at this morning, the discipleship, uh, and it's not to minimize it. We, we are a church that wants to be theologically rich and doctrinally sound. In fact, we want to preach and teach God's word that way. And so if you're here this morning, and you're also wondering what's the steady diet of our preaching and teaching. It's expositional preaching, big, big word. So let's let John Stott define it for us. He was a commentator, but also a brilliant theologian. And he says this, exposition refers to the content of the sermon, biblical truth, rather than its style, a running commentary. To expound scripture is to bring out of the text what is there and expose it to view. The expositor opens what appears to be closed, makes plain what is obscure, unravels what is knotted, and unfolds what is tightly packed. So what you will most of the time get is we walk through books of the Bible. But even when we're doing a series like this, it is more of a topical series, we hope to go to a text a scripture, a passage, and unpack it in its proper context of what it was saying to the Thessalonians, but also what it's saying to us today. And so just so you know, I want to make that clear. In a couple weeks, we're going to be starting a series in Philippians, and would love for you to join us there. So, all right, discipleship is giving, giving affections. Let's look at this. First, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you. First Thessalonians 2.8, that's where I'm at. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, 
but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Notice what's sandwiched here. Affections. So being affectionately desirous of you. And then at the end of the verse, because you had become so very dear to us. What Paul is saying here is that he has deep affections for the church, for the church in Thessalonica. He, he's not saying like, hey, we, we, we kind of like you guys. You're decent. He's saying we have this intense affection and emotion for the church for you guys. He even starts off this letter. If you look at the beginning, he's like, this is, this is what we have. A lot of affection and a lot of desire. You've become so very dear to us. And so let me start off by saying this, is that first in discipleship, what we need to have in order to be effective disciple makers is we are discipling the bride of Christ and we are discipling Christians. We have to have a love for the church. We have to have a love for the bride of Christ. But honestly, we've been pretty warped in an understanding of what love and affection is. And so oftentimes when people talk about love and affections, what people will say is stuff like this. I love the worship style. I love the preaching style. I love the programs that they have and that they offer. But in all reality, what you don't hear is, I love the bride of Christ. I have great affections for the church. You'll often hear people fall in love with their ideology of how the Christian church should look. If the church looked like this, or we had this kind of uh, just position, or we looked like this, or lived out community like this, I like the, the time in our church when it looked like this, and it was this size, and it was this size, and what you're saying, I like a lot of things about my vision and my ideology of the church, but don't necessarily love the bride of Christ. Whoa. Dietrich Bonhoeffer would say, another commentary, that's dangerous. That's very dangerous that you love your idea of Christian community more than you love the Christian community itself. Affections for, for Paul, look here. We, we, we so being affectionately desirous of you because your singing was awesome. Man, you guys rolled out gospel community so well. You guys did this, you guys did this. It's none of that. Paul's affections for the bride of Christ were simply because it was the bride of Christ. Christ's greatest affections are for his bride. Paul, being aligned with Christ, says, my greatest affections are for you, for the church, for the bride. That's it. Not what you can do, not what you can provide, the programs you offer, just because of who you are. And let that be a question today. Do you love and affectionately love the bride of Christ for simply being the bride? Or do you love what the bride can do and provide for you? When a church starts to crumble, in the same, it's the same way that a marriage starts to crumble. When people start showing up saying, my needs come first, a marriage falls apart then. So does the church family. When, we, when a church flourishes and when a marriage flourishes is when we come and say, your needs come first. Your needs come first. Our, our, our culture has warped our views of love so much so that love is purely an emotion. And if I feel like doing something, and if I feel like offering something to you, then I'll love you. What do we do when the emotions aren't there? Paul's not saying, hey, be, I'm being so affectionately desirous of you because I feel like being it. It, 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 it. It's not even rooted in some sort of, hey, if, if I feel like this, then I'll do it. He's saying, I feel like this, therefore, I share the gospel with you. I share our lives with you. We do all this. Where's your affection at today for the bride of Christ? Where is your affection at? Let me give some challenges. 
does your love for the bride of Christ look like the secular world? Psychology Today says this, the reason people stop loving and having affections for people is because they stop feeling appreciated, respected, or valued by the other person. How many times do you say, hey, I'm not doing anything or I'm not offering this sort of love or doing these sort of things because they're not doing this for me? And is that a picture of Christ's love? Often I hear Christians, I'm like, oh, they're like, I'm so frustrated. <laughs> I'm so frustrated that so-and-so can't see this and he's doing this and my kids are doing this and my kids are doing this. And I'm like, is it possible that God's giving you an opportunity to love the bride of Christ, to love your kids, to love difficult people in the same exact way that Jesus loves you? Could God provide you with an imperfect church so you can learn what forgiving people looks like? Could God provide you with an imperfect spouse that might be weak in every area that you wish they weren't so that you could actually learn to love your spouse and your church family in the same way that Jesus Christ loves you. You see, we want the unconditional love of Christ. We just don't want to give it to other people. And so it's not if they're pretty, if they do these things, if any of this, it's, it's an affection just simply because they are the bride of Christ, washed and covered and holy and blameless. So what do we do? Let me give three challenges. First, pray for affections for the bride of Christ. Pray that God would give you affections. Say, I want that. God, God knows that and God wants to give good gifts. I want to have greater affections for the bride of Christ. Would you please give me that? Number two, step without your emotions and your affections driving it. So we have a lot of serving needs and you're like, I don't feel like serving. Then I would say, do what you don't feel like doing. In fact, have your kids do what they don't feel like doing. The other day we were disciplining one of our kids and they had to write a letter and I'm purposely using they because I'm really, as they get older, trying not to say like she and he and stuff like that, keeping it vague. But they did not want to write a letter that we, and they're like, I don't feel like writing a letter. And I explained to them, I'm like, hey, we don't get to live life just simply doing all the things we want to do. I said, hey, do you like when dad jumps on the trampoline with you? And they're like, yeah, we love it. I'm like, yeah, guess what? I don't always feel like doing that. I don't, my neck hurts, my back hurts, but I'm like, that's a sacrifice. And in fact, that's what we are oftentimes called to do is do the very things that we're not feeling like doing. And so number two, some of you guys have been here for a while and we've announced like, hey, the bride has needs, love and serve the bride. Step into some of those things, even if you don't like feel like doing it. And then trust this, trust that God will do the work in your heart because sometimes when our heart's not there, our hands can just lead and God will help our hearts to catch up in the process. I was going to say, I don't know how a household will work like that. It's like, I'm like, Allie, I don't feel like doing the dishes. She's like, yeah, it's cool. It's cool. Whenever you feel like doing them, it's get, just get to it. You know, it's, but I'm like, no, she's like, do the dishes. Like, I don't ever feel like doing the dishes. So sometimes we, we have to do that. Number three, inconvenience yourself. And here's what I mean. Sometimes the way that God intentionally grows us is, is having us inconvenient, inconvenience ourselves by reaching out to someone who's really difficult for us. Setting aside time and saying, I'm going to walk toward this person. I'm going to pursue this person. I'm going to have coffee with this person. And by doing it, I, I'm, I'm going to put my emotions underneath the authority of God's word that calls me to love people. And does it? Let me read some verses just to make clear that it does. Look at what Paul says. In 1 Corinthians 1.4, he says, I give thanks to you, my God, always. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. 
Philippians 1.7 says this, it is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for you, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmed of the gospel. Romans 14.9. So Paul has these great infections, uh, affections. Then we see in Romans 14.19. So then let us pursue what makes peace for the mutual upbuilding. 1 John 3.18 says, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and truth. A little less talk and a lot more action. Maybe you guys are familiar with that song. But, but the truth is, is God displayed his love, not just by saying, I love you, but he's saying, is there any other way that I could display how much I love you? Here's my actions. It's my son on a cross on your behalf. Our loves just don't have words. They have action to them. 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. 1 John 4.20 says, If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. Look here. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God. 1 John 4, 7, 8 through 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God does not know God, because God is love. Hebrews 10 talks about, let us consider how to stir up one another to love. That is a thought-provoking exercise. Let us consider how to do that. So maybe your affections aren't there. Pray for those affections. Step out even when they're not there. And inconvenience yourself because Scripture says, hey, love your brother. And, and, don't, and it's, it's, it's essentially saying this, don't call yourself a Christian if you're not actually loving your brother. Because if God's love is within you, then you love what God's love. Who? The bride of Christ. This is why I have a lot of challenge for people that are like, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm not involved in a local church. I don't go to church. Definitely Christian. Me and Jesus are good. I'm like, are you and Jesus good on your standards or on his? Next, we give good news. So we give affections because discipleship is giving. And then we give good news. Look at what Paul says here. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Verse 9. For you remember brothers. Notice he says brothers. Our labor and toil, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Is it weird to you that Paul is saying, brothers, we work night and day so we can proclaim the gospel to you. We, so being so affectionately desirous of you, we, we, we wanted to share with you not only the gospel. Why would Paul, why would Paul need to share the gospel with a church. That's who he was writing to. Why would Paul want to continue to share the gospel with the church? You ever ask that? Paul is writing to Christians and saying, here's what I'm excited to give you. They're already Christians. And he said, I'm excited to, to, to give you the gospel. This is consistent with Paul's other teaching. If we look in 1 Corinthians, he spent 18 months in the city of Corinth. You know what he said? I profess to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this. Again, this is almost the end of the letter. He said, brothers, Christians, I would remind you of the gospel that you received, that you stand in, in which you are being saved. Past tense, present tense, ongoing tense. Like Paul is saying, here's, here's what I wanted to give to you. Already Christians, I want to give you the gospel. And so many times people think, the, think that the gospel is primarily for the non-Christian when in fact the gospel is both for the non-Christian and for the Christian. 
One gentleman went up to a pastor named Mark Dever once and said, Mark, I, I got to love with you. I didn't hear the gospel in your sermon. And, and Mark said, you know, I'm, I'm pretty certain I shared it. And then he went back and looked at his notes and said, I didn't share it. And he said, from that day forth, I made sure that the gospel would be in every one of my sermons. And this gentleman was essentially saying, yeah, for, so the non-Christian can hear how to be, become saved. There's one problem with that. Paul is not just talking to non-Christians. Paul is talking to the church, which means it's not just non-Christians that need the gospel. It's Christians day in and day out that need the message of the gospel. And maybe you've grown up in the church and you're like, yeah, the gospel's that one thing that I prayed or said past tense. But the gospel is, as Tim Keller would say, the A to Z's of Christianity, the very essence of what our lives are built on. It speaks to everything. Paul uses a word here. Look at gospel in verse eight. The Greek word for gospel is a word, euangelion, euangelion. That's a secular word in the Greek culture. So Paul is using a secular word word that people were familiar with in this day and time. Do you guys remember the old saying, extra, extra, read all about it? That came to us by paper boys. When the, when, when the printing press was out, and, and that was the way we received news, they would print in the mornings, and then if something big happened after the paper was printed, they would have newsboys out on the streets, and they would be screaming, extra, extra, read all about it. And what they're saying is, you got to get a hold of this now. It's some extra news, some piece of information. You have to hear about it. Get it now before, the, before it's printed about tomorrow. Like be on the up and up. When Paul was using this term in this culture, they understood the context for it. Euangelion was primarily used in two ways. To talk about a military battle or defeat, you would send a messenger back to a town and say, Euangelion, Euangelion, good news, good news. We have just beat the enemy. And they would declare it, Euangelion, Euangelion. But the other way is if, Someone took over a kingdom, and there was a new king that rose up. They would say, euangelion, euangelion, good news, good news. You can be in right standing with the king and with this kingdom if you follow these decrees. We even see an example of this in Prien in 9 BC. It says this. This is an, uh, an inscription from Prien, which was a town about 17 miles north of Ephesus. It says this. Since Providence has said in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue, that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might in war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, surpassing all previous benefactors and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done. And since the birthday of the God Augustus was the beginning of the euangelion, good tidings, good news, for the world that came by reason to him. You can even see with this inscription why Jesus was so offensive to people because he's like, no, he's claiming to be God. I'm the one true God. And so Paul's coming in saying, you on Gelion, you on Gelion. But he says, look, it's the only gospel, not only the gospel, but he says it's the gospel of God. Great. What is the gospel? Let me say this. If you're in here and you're not a Christian, please hear this. Understand what the gospel is because it's really offensive. And if you are going to understand what the gospel is, then you need to rightly know what exactly you are objecting and rejecting. So I don't like it when people misrepresent me and they're like, Rick, you're a hunter. Yes, I am. They're like, yeah, I get it, man. I see a lot of guys with jacked up trucks, Confederate flags and guns hanging out the window. I'm like, that's not hunting. Like that's driving on a road, <laughs> hoping something runs out in front of you. I, I have a definition of what actually hunting looks like and how it's lived out. 
And I like to be faithfully represented in that. And I would say Christians want to be faithfully represented in what we understand. So please hear this. The gospel is the good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So the euangelion, the good news, is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Here's the good news. And if you've heard it, my prayer is to the Spirit that it'll be fresh news for you this morning. The good news is this, that God sent God to save us from God and to himself. God sent God to save us from himself and to himself. People like the second part of that, but the first part of this is what we need to hear. The gospel is good news because there's really bad news. We know what good music is because we have screamo music, right? And so, sorry, Ronnie. The gospel is good news because there's really bad news. Here's the bad news, that we're not as good as we like to think we are. In fact, we're not good at all. But what's amazing is the amount of people that get so offended when I tell them, hey, biblically speaking, you're not good. And they're like, no, I'm not, I'm, I am good. I'm not perfect by any means, but I'm pretty good. Would it shock you to know that Hitler or slave owners and a lot of other people in prison also think that they are good people? Are you guys good with them holding to the stance that I'm a pretty good person? We would say, no, there needs to be an objective standard of what is good and what is bad. Not everyone can just be arbitrary and be like, yeah, well, I think I'm pretty good. Our sinful nature that is inside of us loves, loves, loves to compare ourselves to other people. According to God's word, there's no one who is good, not a single person. So God doesn't allow bad things to happen to good people. God allows good things oftentimes to happen to sinners, bad people. And we need to correct that way of thinking. Not, not because we want to tell you you're so bad, but because we want to actually have a biblical understanding of the human heart and nature so we can know how far off we are from ever comparing ourselves to a holy and righteous God. Think about it. Each person takes about 12 to 20 breaths every night, about 7,000 breaths throughout the night. Every one of those you borrowed from God without the intent to pay back. Some could say that's stealing. God in his mercy allowed sunrise to come upon you this morning, though you borrowed all of his air from last night. He allows sun to come on the entire world who rejects him. When I think about man's rebellion against the holy God and the beauty of all he's created, I'm like, my goodness, my God is merciful. When I look at my life on the other side of Christ, I'm like, whoa, because I look at my life on this side of Christ. And even my confession sometimes is I'm not confessing because I've grieved the heart of God. I'm confessing because I don't want to look bad to other people. I'm broken and I'm selfish. Therefore, God sent God to save me from God as his enemy, as someone who deserves his wrath. And let's be frank, I want a God who is just. And so Jesus came in human form, living and walking this earth completely selfless with every thought giving full glory to God. Can, can you, he was the perfect sibling. He was the perfect child. Mothers, he's the, he's the one you'd want to raise. Every motive and intention from his heart was pure. Then why did he hang on a cross and die as a vile sinner? Because on that cross, what Jesus was saying through his death and, or, or, or through his existence there on the cross was this, is God is not going to let immorality slide. God is going to uphold justice as we would want a just and holy God to do. And so instead of saying, uh, we, we need the good news of the person and work of Jesus. His person is that he's eternal and an eternal punishment had to be paid. Eternal hell had to be absorbed on a cross. And so Jesus was essentially saying, pour out that wrath and punishment on me 
and spare them. Let me be consumed so they're not. And when we trust in him, what happens is he takes all of our sin, every single thing, every thought, everything like that, and he takes it upon himself and he pays the price for it. And then he walks in the tomb. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. But he's the person in human history who walked out of that tomb as a victor. And when we trust in him, here's the good news. We're forgiven of our sins, but it doesn't stop there. Please hear this. We're not just washed pure. We are then reconciled to God. That's the byproduct of the gospel is reconciliation and identity in Christ. God's, God's full acceptance of love. Imagine taking something that's the most precious to you and then giving it to someone and say, hey, can you protect this? And, and, and they build like this 12-foot tungsten box around it. And around that, they, they put more metal and more steel. And around that, they put concrete. And around that, they put even more metal and more steel. And they put government locks on there. And then you walk up there and, and, and put like a three-year-old plastic lock on there. And you're like, for good measure. You believing that you can add anything to what Christ has done in your day and life now diminishes what he did on the cross and in his life for you. If you want to glorify God, throw the full weight of your entire existence into what Christ finished on the cross for you. He said it's finished, and it was. You can glorify God by fully confidently trusting in what Christ did, which means that the gospel has saved you, the gospel is saving you, and the gospel will continue to save you, which means this. Many Christians believe it was this one-time thing, and now it's all up to me. No. Day in and day out, Christian maturity is that it's the gospel that is constantly saving me, and it's what I'm constantly looking to, and it's the perfection that I need, and it's speaking to every area of my life. And what it looks like in discipleship is, first and foremost, is discipleship is giving, and it's giving people that good news. You are infinitely loved by God. You are precious to him, and as, as, as secure as whatever was precious in that box can't be moved, can't be touched. You cannot be moved outside of the loving arms of Christ. Mothers, this is good news. Your identity, as which was said in that video, isn't in your parenting. It's not in your motherhood. I'm going to offend moms for just a minute. If you died, it would be really sad. But life would go on. And your kids would likely survive. Even if you're breastfeeding them, they could take a bottle. It would be sad but life would go on. If that hurts or offends you, there is a possible chance that your identity is so wrapped in how much you are needed as a mom instead of the freedom that God can ultimately take care of your kids, bring about their salvation, and he's the only one that can do that. And though he's given you the gift of children in your life right now, your ultimate identity isn't in how well you are taking care of them. Your identity is in the fact that you're a daughter of the living God. And there is a ton of freedom to know how good your God is that delights over you in your worst moments. Last, and we'll move through this last one quickly. If discipleship is giving, we give our affections, we give good news. Let me say this before I move on from that. Practice speaking the good news to one another. When, when, when someone's fallen into sin, we don't just say, stop doing that. We say, hey, start living like who you are in Christ. <laughs> start living pure and holy because that's how God sees you. Last, we give our hearts. Look at the text here. Look with me. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. That word selves comes to us by a Greek word, which is suke. 
which is where we get our English word psyche. Aristotle and many others believed that the brain back then was just a radiator for our bodies. It cooled down our bodies, but we actually thought with our hearts, which would be pretty consistent with what Paul is saying here. What he's saying is give yourselves, but the way that's often translated is hearts or souls. Give your heart, give your soul to people. What does that look like? Dads, let me start with you. Your kids don't just need your work. They don't need just food on the table. What your kids want and desire is not just your performance. They want your heart. They want your life. They want your soul. We need to give the gospel, but we also need, that's the, honestly, guys, that's where it gets pretty nitty gritty. And you're never going to give your heart and life unless the gospel first goes from here into here anyways. Because it takes a lot of security in Christ to say, I'm a friggin' mess. And I don't even know where to start with. And I'm afraid that if I share with you all that was going on inside of here, the depths of my brokenness, my thoughts, and all that's in here, that everyone's going to run away from me and reject me. And I would say that's where discipleship is really happening. That we are giving people the gospel, but we're also giving them our heart as well and saying, and I've heard countless times people say, hey, I I go to GCC. Why? Because you guys won the tug of war tournament at man camp? No, we did. Uh, (laughs) Because you guys are funny? No. Because of X, Y, and Z? No. Do you know I've heard countless times that people say, I've come to this church and I've come back to this church because you preach the gospel and you're transparent with your need for it. What is attractive to people is attractive to us because it's the word of God. (laughs) Paul continued to preach the gospel and even displayed, they're saying, I'm the chief of sinners. I I know the things I'm supposed to do, but I don't do the, the very things I know that I should do. And we're drawn to that. Why? Because it's the gospel, but it's also a declaration of here's how my soul is still wrestling to actually believe the truth of who Christ is and what he's done for me. Christians, it also says that Paul gave this. It doesn't show anywhere here that Paul sat around until they asked. And a lot of people think that's what discipleship is. Hey, you need to find a mentor. And what you need to do is the mentor needs to sit down with you and ask you like 20 questions and really get to know you. And in our individualistic society, like we love that. And then you, you, you arrive and, and then you're like, hey, will you disciple me? And people are like, I don't really want to. And we're like, why? Because they, they understand what you understand. I want you to sit down with me. I want you to show up with like 20 questions and really get to know me. That sounds awful. It really does. In fact, in my 20s, I went to an older guy and I was like, hey, will you, will you disciple me? And he's like, what do you have in mind? Great question. And I was like, I got a lot of questions about life and about theology and stuff like that. And I just want to show up and ask you. In fact, I said this, I don't have much money. I was like, I'll buy coffee and lunch every time we meet. Somewhere in our society, uh, discipleship has been, hey, I just need someone doing this for me. And the church doesn't exist by, by everyone going, I just need to find someone to disciple me. The church exists by saying, everyone start discipling someone else. And then it's not like, hey, if someone asks good intentional questions, it's like, no, Paul's like, I gave myself to you. Why? Because I figured that me giving you my burdens would give you a biblical opportunity to bear my burdens. It wasn't like, hey, if I was going to be asked the right questions, then I would share. Paul's like, no, I shared my life with you. We shared our souls with you. We shared what was going on in our lives. Not because you sat down and had a list of questions you asked us, but just because we gave that to you in generosity. Someone popped by my office this week and, and, and they shared something with me that was difficult for them to share with me. And it was even one of my faults and failures. And, and, and honestly, I, I, I told the person, I was like, man, how much love do you have for me? Because 
I could see how uncomfortable you were even sharing this, that you chose to love me more than your own comforts. He was giving me his heart, and he wasn't just giving me part of his heart that I wanted or liked. Part of giving our hearts is also giving difficult things to share with one another. I think if discipleship looked more like that too, more like people showing up together to say, let's give one another the gospel and give our lives to one another, people would be like, yes, let's do that. That's beautiful. It removes a certain pressure from it. I'm not going to read the list of statistics that talk about the massive amount of people who have fallen from ministry. But I'll summarize it, that it's about 1,500 ministers a month that are leaving ministry, and a lot of them moral, morally disqualifying themselves. And there's been one common thread. You look at men like Mark Driscoll, Art Azurdia, Ravi Zacharias, Bill Heibel, a lot of men that we, well, these three, a lot of men that we would say have good theology, really good theology. And we wouldn't disagree with their theology. You, you look at some of their spiritual disciplines. I remember hearing about Artaxerxes' spiritual disciplines. I'm like, whoa, who's ever going to keep up with that? So what happens that these men who have great theology come to such a moral failure? And out of every statistic, there was one common thread. No one knew them. They could spit a lot of facts. They could tell you a lot of good theology, but no one knew what was going on inside of their hearts. They were lonely. They were extremely lonely, and oftentimes many Christians are lonely, but we're sitting back going, who's going to reach out to me? Who's going to reach out to me? And I would put that on you. Who is reaching out to the other person? And who's reaching out to the other person? It's never going to work if we're all just going, who's reaching out to me? The church works when we go, I'm going to put, what if for the rest of your life, no one else, no one ever reached out to you? No one ever gave you what you wanted, but you only served and unloaded yourself for the bride of Christ. You would only be doing a glimpse and a picture of what Christ has done. It's going to be lonely until we start inviting some people into our mess and start giving them what's going on in our lives. Man, I yelled at my kids this morning. I'm like, get your butt up the stairs. And like, I, I showed up this morning wrecked. It's just been a really hard week. My mom's going through a difficult time. We're going through a difficult time. But I can't hold you accountable to not pressing into my life if I'm not even sharing or giving those things to you to bear and then whine about it. That's like a, some sort of martyr syndrome. I need to share with you guys. And to share with our members and share with our elders, this is what's going on, guys. I'm struggling. And then give people the opportunity to lean in and love and serve on, on us. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. You are good and you are faithful. Thank you for the good news. Thank you that we're secure in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.